0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the sermon part of our service this morning. We're glad that you're joining us. And friends, you've heard the text this morning, and I will be honest that our sermon text for today isn't one of my favorites. You may be wondering why that is, as our text is 1 Corinthians 13. It is about love, after all. And someone pointed out to me recently that all preachers have one sermon theme that makes its way into all sermons in some way, shape, or form, and love might be my theme. I'm passionate about this. I think it's part of my calling in life to show people that God loves them and work together with folks to love others well in our spaces and places. It's something I'm deeply passionate about. But while I cannot stop preaching about love apparently, this text isn't one I normally focus on because it is known as the wedding text. And it's hard to break it out of that box and look at it in new ways. Richard Hayes, a 1 Corinthians scholar, says of our text that the first task of the interpreter of 1 Corinthians 13 is to rescue it from the quagmire of romantic sentimentality in which popular piety has embedded embedded it. The common use of this text in weddings has linked it in the minds of many with flowers and kisses and frilly wedding dresses. Such images are far removed from Paul's original concern. So... While romantic love is so beautiful and needed in our world, something many of us experience, something many of us long for, this isn't the main concern of 1 Corinthians 13, and certainly isn't why it is written. It must be broken free from this box. And maybe you aren't surprised by my dislike of this text. I often start out disliking whatever text I preach on for any given Sunday. I come to the text with my own lenses, as we all do. And many texts like this one, I know, are taken out of context, or don't hold fond memories for people, or perhaps I've seen them used in terrible ways against people that I love. This text has been used to tell single people that they will never fully know God's love until they get married. I come to the text with some suspicion, sometimes perhaps, as I've seen things be used to tell people that they aren't good enough, and this one specifically, that people won't know the fullness of God's love outside of marriage. And so this text hasn't always been my favorite. And you know that I sometimes come to texts this way before I study them and preach on them. And, speaking of not feeling good enough for whatever reason because of a text, another reason I struggle with this text is because I have a hard time living up to this kind of love. Maybe you felt it too. This is a very high bar to live up to. Years ago, I even wrote a confessional prayer or poem about it, and it's titled Confession. And I'm going to read it to you. It goes like this. You say love is patient, but my anxious heart over and over taps her feet and squirms. You say love is kind, but my tongue isn't always so much. You say love does not envy, but I wonder if I am all alone in wanting, and I wonder if you, God, will ever fully satisfy. You say love does not boast, but I have embellished the truth in desperate attempts to find worth. You say love is not proud or rude, but I find myself in those corners constantly. You say love is not easily angered, but I wonder if it is being easily angered when so much injustice is happening in the world and I find myself simply angry. You say that love keeps no record of wrongs, but forgiveness is elusive to me. You say love always protects, but I don't always associate with those who need my protection. You say love always trusts, but experience tells me to fear, and I do more often than not. You say love always hopes, but I wonder if any good can come now that we ache so deeply. You say love always perseveres, but I find myself hanging back, silent and inactive, unsure. You say love never fails, but I do. Oh God, who is love, stick with me, please, your loveless creature and maybe you can relate how how can we preach this text read this text in church say we are all about love when this is the standard and this isn't completely gone from my heart to be honest when i read this text but in studying 1 Corinthians 13 this week i learned an interesting thing this this struggle to find to love each other and and this struggle in feeling inadequate in loving is exactly what 1 Corinthians 13 was addressing. And perhaps it could meet us there and bring us some hope. So before we dive in, please join me in prayer. Let us pray. God, as we study this more familiar text today, would you meet us here and open our hearts? We all come with our lenses, ways that we have heard your word interpreted before, Maybe we come excited to hear our favorite text, or maybe some of us come frustrated and suspicious of it. For all of us, God, help us to see it with new eyes. Please meet each of us where we are today and wrap us in your arms of love. Show us your way forward in love, even as we weather a pandemic, even as days seem long, even as we are exhausted, unsure, afraid, and all sorts of things because of this new normal. We pray your presence to be with each of us in our spaces and places, showing us your truth and grace. And God, if there's anything that I speak that isn't helpful for all of us gathered watching, may we simply forget it. We pray these things in your loving name, Jesus. We pray these things in the name of our creator, redeemer, and the spirit among us. Amen. So my friends, let us dive in this is the context of first corinthians 13. it isn't written for use at a first century wedding instead first corinthians 13 is a piece of correspondence between the apostle paul and members at a church in corinth these members at the church in corinth were telling were at their wit's end they had probably written a letter to paul previously telling him about the problems they were all having in their congregation Maybe it is a bit like if our church was having problems altogether, issues with each other, and we wrote to the superintendent of our conference and asked them to help us. Maybe it's a bit like that. Or maybe Paul had simply heard about what was happening. Like today, things get passed through a grapevine. Maybe he had heard of all that was going on with the Corinthians at that church, and the Apostle Paul penned this letter to the Corinthians to them to help them become a healthier congregation. And chapters 11 through 14 are a section that must be read together, and Pastor Meg preached on a little bit of this last week. These chapters address many things happening in that congregation. It addresses everything from how they take communion, because apparently folks were eating only with people of their social and economic classes. Some people were getting drunk and others were not sharing their food with members of the body who were less fortunate. It addresses everything from how they take communion to how they worship together because also apparently some folks were using their spiritual gifts in ways that made others uncomfortable. Maybe some spoke in tongues and some didn't, some were raising hands and some not, or they were bragging about their ways of worshiping God. And this was not helping their community. And so Paul addresses these things in chapter 11, chapters 11 through 14. Chapters 11 and 12 seem to address things more head-on. Paul tells, tells the folks in Corinth to get it together and do some specific things in their community in order to operate better as a church community. But chapter 13, it does something quite different. This chapter, it feels like a song, like a poem, maybe, a prayer. I kind of think it is Paul's way of speaking to everyone in the group. Some folks in our congregation, for example, might like the facts and numbers and others might like poetry and music. And we all have different ways of understanding reality and connecting with truth. Maybe some of us like both. All of these ways of connecting and learning are good. And a good teacher will know how to incorporate many different ways of learning into their lessons. And maybe this is what the Apostle Paul is doing for this church in Corinth. This chapter is for the artists, chapter 13. This chapter is for teaching the artists and the congregation what it means to be in community with one another. And this poem, prayer, or song, Paul uses specific words in it that tie to the other chapters of 1 Corinthians, chapters 11 through 14. When he says love is patient and kind, he's referring to ways he has already addressed in other chapters, how the Corinthians were not being patient and kind to one another. When he said love does not envy or boast, the Corinthians would have known that he was referring to specific things that he already wrote to them in previous chapters. He even uses some of the same Greek words. So this is clearly the same thing being taught again, but in a different way. And the Apostle Paul focuses it on one thing. The Apostle Paul is a genius in how he writes here, in tying in other things he said and teaching this congregation using many different tactics so all can relate to what he is saying. And through it, he addresses some pretty big concerns in this church in Corinth. He invites the Corinthian church to consider why it is that they are not getting along. And then he focuses in. And he says that perhaps it is because they are focusing on doing the wrong or doing the right things, but not their motives for doing so weren't correct. And without the right motive, even their good works will fail. And being in community with one another will fail. And Paul says that their disunity as a body is because of their lack of having the motive of love. Paul invites them to re-examine their actions through the lens of love. Is everything done with and in love in this community? And if not, how might we get back to that place of love? And I think this is a really good word for this time. Church, our country, is divided. The American church is divided, and some of it is for good reason. There is so much around us that is unjust. There are human rights abuses at every turn, and we cannot minimize those. We must always, always, always work for good policies, for justice and mercy. And sometimes injustice does divide people. When we work for things to be better, it will divide us from people who aren't. Sometimes when we work for goodness around us, it will divide. That happened in our scripture. Jesus caused division with his radical work and words. This right here is not a sermon where I say we should put aside our differences because of some shallow version of love and agree with one another all the time, especially when there are injustices happening in and outside the church sphere. When black lives are degraded and taken and murdered, we side with our black brothers and sisters. When LGBTQ people are being pushed out of the church and when churches say it isn't time yet for full inclusion, we side with LGBTQ friends. When some friends protest stay-at-home orders and endanger themselves and everyone else, we talk to them and share our own opinions on why being home is loving our neighbors. This isn't a sermon on peace that isn't really peace, telling some to be quiet while they suffer. And I don't think that's what Paul is talking about when he talks about unity and love here either. Paul's teaching in chapters 11 through 14 isn't about pretending all is well or about agreeing on everything. It is about a deeper understanding of love that refuses to dehumanize one another, even if you disagree vehemently and may continue to work for things to be different in a way that your neighbor does not like. Paul tells the Corinthians that they can ask themselves if they are participating in a humanizing kind of love, one that is patient kind, that does not envy, does not boast, is not proud or rude, is not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. He invites them, and through them, us, too, to a love that always protects, especially the vulnerable, always trusts in a way that isn't about getting walked over, but is about believing the best about people first, even if at first it seems another's ways are malicious. Paul invites them and us to a love that always hopes and perseveres, even though the way isn't clear and the future doesn't look so good. So, how might we do this as a church, as First Covenant? How might we take Paul's letter to the Corinthians in that ancient context and apply it well in our own modern one? Of course, in political and theological matters, we keep working for justice always, but we do so without dehumanizing someone who disagrees with us. Even if we know their view and actions hurt people that we love, we still know that this other person is a person and beloved of God, an image bearer of God. This is how this works. I see you doing many things out of love for one another in this pandemic wearing masks out of kindness, staying home in patience, weeding out bad information online in order to rejoice in the truth. I see you lifting up one another's gifts of writing letters, caring for those who are sick, and delivering care packages in a pandemic out of love. And that is a love that isn't self-seeking. You organized the Saturday breakfast to protect the vulnerable. And I know these aren't nothing. These aren't just good works done out of bad motivations. They are done out of true love for one another and for the community. I've been privileged to hear your hearts in this. This is you loving. And I've seen all of you across the political spectrum do this for for each other um, over the past few years. I remember one time that after the 2016 presidential election, when many of us were grieving the results, a member who was not grieving the results joined in a protest of the president and his administration just to be able to learn more about what the other side of things was thinking and feeling. We all as First Covenanters marched together, and I remember Jim Sundholm was with us too, marching for things to be different. And we all marched together as protesters yelled against the president that this one member had voted for. I was amazed at this one member of First Covenant. While we might have disagreed, I could see the ways that he was loving people so beautifully. Joining this protest was big of this person. It was humble and loving, and it caused all of us First Covenanters at the protest to remember to not dehumanize other people, even as we disagree passionately, and even while many of us work for our president to be taken out of office. While many of us do this work, we remember the humanity of everyone involved. We remember that we are all precious image-bearers of God. We can do this across the political spectrum for each other. All of this is the kind of love that Paul talks about. You do this constantly as a church, and it is utterly gorgeous. And so you have done it. You are doing it. How might we continue to love moving forward in our own ways, in our spaces and places, and even during a pandemic? What are ways that we might ask ourselves, what is love? Are our emotions lo- Are our motives loving? Are we doing this with and in love? And perhaps we might look at this song, this poem, this prayer of the Apostle Paul's as we think through this. Maybe it can be our yardstick for love. Is what we are doing or thinking of doing patient and kind? Is it believing in the good of our neighbor? Is it hopeful for how we might continue to use our buildings in radically loving ways in our neighborhood? How might this invitation to love teach us to think outside of the box to protect the vulnerable? This poem can be our yardstick to measuring our community life together. This is something the Apostle Paul gave us. This is a wild time for all of us in so many different ways. There is no denying that. Something that someone in our church just taught me that helps some days become easier in the pandemic is the practice of acknowledging what you are looking forward to. I spend some time each day thinking about what I am looking forward to. Perhaps it is my evening walk or the going out to check the new blooms outside my window. Maybe it is the time I am setting aside for myself to write or to do art. Maybe it is the meal I'm cooking later in the day. Maybe it is a clean, clean sink. Maybe it is a phone call with a friend. And in my looking forward, I cannot help but dream a bit about what it might look like to be together again as a church community. And I look forward and dream about what our church could look like in the future. There are so many beautiful options. Perhaps this time affords us all space to dream and to pray as a congregation about our future as a body. And I wonder, and I'd love to hear, what do you want that to look like? What do you want the summit building to look like? How might we use it to support ourselves in times like these, but also use it out of deep love for our community? What are your dreams for our church? What could our loving motivations look like in action moving forward? How do you think God might be inviting us to live out this invitation to love in 1 Corinthians 13 as a church body? I would be honored to hear about your dreams as you pray and look ahead in this time. Please send them my way. And I think... Perhaps the best part of this 1 Corinthians text is that it calls the Corinthians to love, a love that seems quite impossible, but that takes examples of that kind of love from the example of Christ. Perhaps we can each think of instances in the Gospels where Jesus embodies these things. Jesus' love is patient, even more so than the most patient parents homeschooling their children, perhaps sometimes with exasperation in this time. Jesus' love is also not shallow nice, but is deeply kind. Jesus' love is not easily angered, but as the psalmist tells us, God's love gives grace and keeps no record of wrongs. And most notably, Jesus's love, it is steadfast. Verse 8, the end of our text today, says love never fails. The Greek word here can be translated that way, or as love never falls, never falls apart, never ends. And there is a movie that I love that paints this picture to me of never ending, never falling, never failing love. Have you seen the classic movie, Free Willy? It is set in the Pacific Northwest, and I watched it this past week again just for fun. And because I am obsessed with orca whales, I love them. My first research paper in sixth grade was on saving the whales, and I have been committed to freeing whales from theme parks ever since. And this movie, let me tell you, it is all about never-ending love. The never-ending love between a young boy named Jesse and a caged orca whale named Willie. Jesse is an often homeless kid who gets in trouble for running away from his foster parents and he defaces the local aquarium with graffiti. And Jesse is asked to clean up the graffiti each day and in doing so, he gets to know the staff there. And then he meets Willie, the orca whale. And Willie, he doesn't behave well for the staff members and is known to be a bit of a troublemaker. But Willie and Jesse, they start to have a special bond. I think animals often know when we're struggling, don't they? I've experienced this with family dogs growing up. Perhaps Willie the whale knew that Jesse needed a friend. And Jesse is able to feed Willie fish out of his hand and teach him swimming tricks. And the aquarium that Willie lives in and that Jesse defaced is struggling to make ends meet and is under a group of developers who wants to get rid of the whale and other animals in order to turn the park into something else and make more money. I didn't realize this when I was a child, but this movie is very anti-capitalist. And Jesse and the rest of the staff work with the developers to show them that Willie and the park is worth saving. They devise a plan to show off Willie's skills to the de- to the developers so they can keep their jobs and keep the park. But Willie the Whale gets nervous and has other ideas. In front of everyone, he fails. He refuses to do the tricks that Jesse taught him. Jesse and the water pack staff are disappointed, and the developers, they're disappointed too, and move forward with their plan to kill Willie by draining his tank and destroying the aquarium. But... Jesse's love for Willie the whale never failed. While Willie failed him, failed all of his training, failed to help them save him, their jobs and the aquarium, Jesse and some of the aquarium staff, along with Jesse's foster parents, load Willie the whale up onto a truck and risk life and limb to take him to the ocean where he can finally be free. They drive him through a car wash in order to keep Willie breathing and wet. They drive him up and down perilous roads on the way to the ocean, almost losing their cars. They get beat up by the developers as they release Willie into the water. And Jesse always believes, always hopes, always perseveres, and even gets Willie the whale to jump over a landmass in order to get to the ocean on the other side to be free. And we know that like Willie, we will fail. Our own love will fail. We cannot always live up to this beautiful poem of how we should love and what our motivations of love should be like. We know that at times we are loveless creatures, but the good news is that we have a God whose love is more like Jesse's than our own. We remember that through the books of the prophets, while God's people kept failing, kept failing to do justice, kept failing to love, God kept bringing them back and kept loving them, kept refocusing them on doing justice, on loving mercy, on walking humbly with their God, all through love. We remember that God's love never fails because John 13:1 says that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, now loved them to the end. This is the gospel. No matter how much we fail, and we do, we are so deeply loved, no matter what. We remember that God's love never fails. Christ's love for us never ends. So while we remember that we strive for love in all that we do, while we ask ourselves if our love is patient and kind, while we remember that without love our actions aren't enough, we also remember more than anything else that God's love never fails and that Christ loves us to the very end. Amen.